It's episode 101 of the Improv London podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Moses, and this week's guest is Mark Beltzman. Hey. Hello. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Mark. Thanks. How are you? Great, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Great. Very excited to have awesome. you on the show. And action. <laughs> so you're in London at the moment. Yes. <laughs> Thank yes. you for Enjoying coming to Enjoying another London foggy day. <laughs> um, yeah, can you tell me a little bit about um, this visit to London, maybe some of your impressions? What are you here to uh, tell the Yeah, well... Um, if I go back a bit, I mean, it all started in 2012. I was doing a musical uh, called Reanimator the Musical, and we were uh, in L.A., and then we went to Broadway and did the uh, New York Music Festival, came to Edinburgh to do the uh, Fringe Festival in 2012, and, um, and then my wife and I uh, kind of decided to liquidate everything we own in L.A. because we were staying in the same apartment for about 21 years at that point. Wow. So we sold our cars, our clothes, our furniture, put some stuff in a friend's garage, and she met me in uh, Scotland, and then we just uh, kind of improvised our lives for about 14 months. Wow. And I ended up meeting um, uh, David Shore in Edinburgh, and he get, gave me in contact with um, Jules Munns, mm-hmm. Uh, from the nursery, and uh, and then Jules and I really hit it off, and Jules kind of uh, booked our workshops, for, and I lived in Blackheath for about five months. Wow. And uh, really uh, enjoyed it, and I joined the scene here, and uh, we had a great time, and, and then I came back again in 2014, and this time uh, I contacted um, Jules, and he said they were pretty booked up. So uh, I contacted Steve Rowe, and um, I was teaching in Paris, uh, before I got here and doing a weekend seminar there. So I wanted to, you know, add on to it. And Steve was very excited. Uh, he was one of my students uh, when I was here in 2012. He did the four-week course that I had offered at that time. Wow. And so uh, we were both excited to see each other again. And, and I heard Hoopla was doing really uh, great work here and had expanded a lot since I had last been here six years ago. Mm. Um, and um, so we set up these courses, and uh, it was, it's been really successful, and uh, the response has been overwhelming, and I've been getting a lot of uh, great feedback from all the students, and you were one of them, actually. Yes. On Thursday, yes. I taught a, a uh, secret workshop for Hoopla, <laughs> and only the teachers and a couple other people were involved, uh, and uh, it was really, uh, really fun, and, and I had a great time, and, and I hope you did, too, so yeah. you'll have to tell people about your experience, and... And uh, so that's how I got here, and that's what I've been doing for the last two weeks here in London. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, no, I had, a, I had a really great time. There were lots of sort of interesting ideas that you were exploring that were very helpful to me as an improviser. Oh, that's great to hear. Thanks. Um, there's one of the things you said was, uh, you're talking about starting a scene as you would normally end it, is that? Yeah, the way, my philosophy is most people spend most of their time on stage dosy doing around each other, trying to figure out the who, what, and where, and what the relationship is, and then the lights go out, and that's about all the time they have. So I like to jumpstart it and teach people to take the end of what you normally know as a scene and put it at the beginning when the lights come up and establish the relationship, uh, the who, what, and where right at the beginning as quickly as possible and then just talk to each other about each other 
and develop the relationship between two actors and let all the information and exposition emerge organically from exploring and heightening the relationship between two uh, improvisers. Yeah. And so that's my philosophy. And when you can cut to the chase, then we have the whole time on stage to really heighten the idea of the relationship instead of trying to find the relationship. Right, yeah. So it's, it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently is the fact that it's the relationship between the people on stage that we're interested in. We're not worried about whether, you know, the bike gets fixed or something like that. Yeah, you know, most of the information uh, is invented. People talk about the mechanics of improvisation and the structure of improvisation, but the foundation of improvisation is acting. Mm -hmm. And I think that's forgotten very often. And I have a lot of experience in movies and television, and, and, and I'm an actor, a journeyman character actor in Los Angeles. And it's really important to me in the foundation of it. Uh, it's kind of like uh, when you become a musician or say you want to play the piano. Uh, you can't just go play Beethoven's Fifth on the <laughs> piano. Uh, you have to start with scales and learn the um, ideas and the foundation of being an actor. And that's what really uh, exploring and heightening the relationship and improvisation is all about. So instead of inventing and making up all the exposition, which is external from the relationship, I believe that all that information will emerge organically from talking to each other about each other. And that's kind of my philosophy. So I like moving the end of the scene that you know up to the beginning of the scene when the lights come up. And then we just, you know, there's so much more fun to play. And you get a lot more laughs because people don't understand that um, there's three points of focus that have to come together. You discover what you're saying and doing the same time your partner discovers what you're saying and doing, the same time the audience discovers what you're saying and doing. Hmm. And the audience is part of the ensemble, and everybody in the room has to be in on that moment of discovery. And when they are, and those three points of focus come together, then the audience laughs so hard it stops the show every <laughs> single time. It has nothing to do with being funny, clever, witty, right or wrong, good or bad. It's simply about talking to each other about each other and making the discovery in that moment so the audience is in on the discovery. Otherwise, you're performing to an audience, for an audience, or at an audience, and very often they're bored and it's hit or miss. And you'll get a couple laughs here and there, or maybe you'll get a laugh from time to time, but really we're not going for the laughs. We want to build the relationship, and that's the foundation of improvisation from my perspective and in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very interesting uh, you talking about it um, from an actor's perspective. Yes. And I've not done any proper acting training. And I often think, oh, if only I had, I would be bringing skills to the stage that I don't have. Um, that's partially true, but also you have a lot of life experience. And improvisation and life in general is just about getting out of your own way. Hmm. But eliminating self, what we call that in the actor's world. And... Um, and allowing it to happen to you instead of you working so hard to try and make something happen. And so you already have that as a human being. You do it every day, say you're at a party or at a pub having a few pints, and you get out of your own way and all of a sudden you become very uh, liberated and you can talk about your feelings, for instance. Yeah. And that's really what I like to harp on. So, you, yes, acting training definitely is um, uh, very helpful to this art form, 
but also you can just access yourself as a human being. And whenever you're able to do that and talk about your feelings in an improv scene, then you can have those three points of focus come together more often than not. And then we can uh, explore and heighten the relationship more effectively instead of, like I said, trying to figure out what the relationship is. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested in the idea of sharing your emotions and mm -hmm. bringing things from your real life onto the stage. Yeah. Why is that so powerful? Well, because it's real. Again, improvisation is about being honest, truthful, and real. And all of those things are very uh, effective when it comes down to acting or improvisation. And we manufacture a lot of those emotions very often, and they're not nearly as powerful as when they're real. Yeah. And I always say to use the stage as therapy. You can go up. <laughs> if you're having a really bad day, go up on stage and use that. And if you're having a really good day, go up on stage and use that. No, You don't have to tell anybody that you're really doing therapy on stage <laughs> with another actor, or you don't have to tell them that that you know, really sad, pathetic, you know, storyline that you uh, initiated on stage is real in your real life. <laughs> but they're always more effective because it's real. The tr There's nothing funnier than the truth. Yeah. And if we can eliminate uh, our opinions of being embarrassed by the truth or by hiding the truth or um, glossing over it, uh, it's always more effective just because honest, truthful, and real cannot be manufactured. Yeah. I'm a big fan of, uh, yeah, if I've got something on my mind, uh, putting that into a scene. Yeah. I find it helps. It does. And what does it make you do? It makes you smile. Yes. That's the whole point of this thing. It, another one of my philosophies and the stuff that I teach is figure out what's working and do more of it instead of trying to change and fix what's wrong. Oh, that's really and so how do you know what's working and what's not? And how do you know the difference? Well, one makes you smile and one doesn't. And even sitting here talking to you, when you say you like taking your personal stuff on stage, you're sitting here smiling <laughs> and laughing. And that's what it does to people. And then we try to manufacture something that will equal that. And there is nothing that will equal that. So it has to be real. It has to be truthful. And it has to be honest. And it's easier to be honest than to invent. That's right. That's what letting it happen to you instead of you trying to make something up. It's so It takes so much effort and there's so much stress, tension, and anxiety with trying to get it right and to be good when you already are right and good if you just go up there and, you know, be yourself. Um, and another interesting thing that you've said is about making the scene about the other person. Yeah, you always want to take care of your partner first. We get very, very caught up in making sure that we do it right. And then when somebody gives you a line of dialogue, most people will spend uh, a few moments either defending that or explaining it or um, trying to justify uh, the line of dialogue instead of just returning uh, to your partner and telling them how you feel about what they just said to you. Yeah. So if you talk to each other about each other, all of that other external information will emerge organically from that process rather than you manufacturing stuff that's external to the scene, which most of the time the audience really doesn't care about. Yeah, 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 because they care about yeah they care about the relationship, the the, the details, the facts. That, yeah, that's not any that. great movie you've ever seen is is a love story because it's about the relationship between 
even if it's a man and his gun, it's usually <laughs> a man and a woman or two men or two women, but it could be a man and his dog. It doesn't matter what it is. It's the relationship is the most powerful and most important part of any improv scene. Yeah. Cool. Um, have you noticed any particular traits that improvisers in London have that say different from other places? Well, the politeness thing, I think, is the hugest thing that sticks really? out. I can't imagine quite what you're and, talking uh, about there. <laughs> fuck you, Stuart! <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's inherent in the culture here and I get it, you know, two people bump into each other and, and they both apologize and uh, in America, two people bump into each other. They're like, watch out. You know, they may say, pardon me, or, uh, they may say, you know, fuck you or get out of my way or look where you're going, but it's not, um, there's no politeness involved with it necessarily. Um, and it's just, I mean, I'm being exaggerated and I'm being a little <laughs> facetious about that I understand so that um, but that's the most inherent thing that I see most of and when in my workshops and in my seminars I can break that habit and get people to stop being so polite and so nice to each other they can immediately access honest truthful and real more efficiently more effective and much quicker and it's, uh, you know, like I said, taking the end of the scene and put it out at the beginning. And that's one way that we can accomplish it. There are many other ways. I mean, that's not the only way for sure. It's just I find it when I teach the most effective way to get people to be honest, truthful and real. And it always puts a smile on their face and they always get excited. It always changes the energy in the room and the audience laughs so hard it stops the show for at least a moment. So, yeah, I mean, I, I take your point um, about if you're in a, an established or uh, if you're in a team that you regularly perform with, mm -hmm. I can see how the getting rid of the politeness is going to access all of this. Yeah. But say you're in a jam, for example, with people you don't know. Yeah. Isn't there not a role? I'm playing devil's advocate here. But yeah, yeah is there not course. a role, you know, role for politeness there? I don't believe so. I think the work is always the most important thing. And for me, the work comes before the politeness. So if you're really honestly emerging yourself in the work and you're being truthful, honest and real in a scene where somebody says something or does something that may be inappropriate, um, you have to address that. And the more honestly you can address that inappropriateness instead of apologize for it or instead of explain it instead of justifying it, then you're going to cut to exploring and heightening the relationship much quicker and much more efficiently than just the external information that you're spouting out trying to explain the situation. Hmm. So in that situation, it seems your approach is very emotionally real and yes. can, can make you feel vulnerable. Yes, that's the whole idea. You got it. But what happens then if the other person comes on and then makes a joke you know, makes a gag at your expense. Your job is to make them look good and you look twice as good. That's what ensemble work is all about. And if they're offended by that, then you just use that in the scene to tell them how you feel about them being offended. Right. And okay. so you just keep turning it by talking to each other about each other and then the rest of it takes care of itself. The scenes will literally write themselves if you play that way. Yeah. I know it sounds unrealistic, but it's true, and it's. I think you've experienced it in the workshop, and you saw other people experience it as well. Yeah, I, I did. 
but then I felt very safe with those people because I knew them reasonably well and I knew they were reasonably mm-hmm. experienced improvisers. Yeah. So I could go to emotionally intense places that I would feel less comfortable going to. Well, you know, there's um, the philosophy. You're you're what ifing right now. So you're what ifing. You're playing devil's advocate and you're what ifing to the negative. What if they get offended? Right. What if they don't appreciate it. What if they sabotage you in the scene? What if they walk off stage? What if they won't play with you after that? And none <laughs> of us can right. predict the future. Nobody can do that. I mean, there are intuitives and there are people who have uh, some kind of uh, sixth sense that can actually predict things, but I don't have that. <laughs> and so because I don't have that, and I can't predict the future, my philosophy is why not what if to the positive? What if that is the best thing you can do in a scene? What if it, if you're improvising with a complete stranger, that gets you a connection in the relationship that you immediately trust each other on stage? What if it leads you to success instead of what if it leads you to failure? And so none of us can predict that. So why not just what if to the positive <laughs> instead of constantly what we all do? And it's a societal thing. It's not just improvisers and it's not just in London. But why not just what if to the positive and imagine that this is going to lead us to greatness instead of this is going to lead us to failure? Right. Yes. Yes. I suppose I'm coming at it from a sort of defensive Position. We all do. It's very human. And it has nothing to do with London or the UK. It's very human and common in America as well. So another thing you said, um, which I really liked and wrote down um, in, the, in the workshop we did. You was, took notes. Wow. Took notes. I'm impressed. Well, I'm, I'm a, actually, this is something I'd like your opinion on. About whether, because I'm, I'm, I'm caught between the two sides here. Is it better when you're in an improv workshop? to be in the moment, to be fully aware, to have all your senses on what's happening in the room, or is it better to take notes so that you remember things and then you can sort of think about them afterwards? I don't know. I think you can do both. I mean, you know, you're asking me, is it possible to multitask or just stay focused? And I say you you can do both. I mean, you know, it's really funny when people take an improv workshop and they're asked to do one thing, they get up on stage and they freeze up trying so hard to get it right that they short circuit their own creative process. They literally take themselves out of the game before they give themselves a chance to play. Yet in real life, you'll be multitasking on a daily basis. You'll be in the kitchen reading a magazine and a cookbook with something on the stove, getting something out of the fridge, pouring yourself a glass of wine, feeding the cat, uh, and you're on the phone the entire time. <clears throat> and you're like doing all these different things. But in an improv course, for some reason, we completely short-circuit our own creative process and ability to multitask because we're so determined to fucking get it right. <laughs> and we want it so badly. And we want to do what the teacher says or do what your partner says or, you know, cooperate in such a determined manner that you literally take yourself out of the game and you're not playing it anymore. We all have the ability to multitask in everything we do. So if you get out of your own way, you can be writing a note and still listening and being aware of what's going on. But you don't want to be so focused in writing an entire paragraph or (laughs) writing a book 
in the middle of a workshop yes. that you were distracting yourself from even hearing what's going on in the in, in the rest of the room. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I think there's a little happy medium between two, the both. Yeah, no, I, I try two things. I, yeah, I try and capture some particular points that mm-hmm. maybe will trigger memories of what happened in the room. Yeah, and I would also suggest you know to just make little bits and notes of things that you want to remember, and then maybe approach the facilitator of the seminar or the teacher and ask them afterwards so you make reminders of what you want to talk about and then you can write down longer patches of what it is that you're being taught or what it is that you want to remember uh, after the experience oh you could start a podcast about improvisation and then uh, I think that's bullshit I would never do anything like that (laughs) yeah I thoroughly discourage people anybody asked me to do a podcast I would say no (laughs) there's no way I would do that especially the hundred and first episode is that fucked up I should have been the hundredth episode how dare you stall was it Amy did the 100th episode? Because uh, I saw he recorded her a few uh, days ago. Uh, yes, That's I did right. interview her. Uh, no, in an active uh, hubris. Who I love, by the way. Amy's great. Yeah, Amy's She's fantastic. Brilliant. No, the, um, the people listening to this will know, but the 100th episode is me. Ah, that's great. <laughs> Which I was really reluctant to do. Um, I interviewed. Brilliant. I interviewed uh, Victoria Hogg, who was also. Um, oh yeah, you know, Vic was Vic. great, brilliant. Um, and uh, I interviewed her on this podcast before, mm-hmm. and she had all these ideas for the hundredth episode. Oh great! And the least painful one seemed to be uh, that it would be me as the guest. Oh uh, nice. Um, and uh, she and Brendan Way um, recorded. Uh, they did more preparation for that one episode than I did for the first uh, one to 99. <laughs> it was really touching. So, um, uh, uh, That's brilliant. I can't wait to listen to it. <laughs> it was very entertaining. They'd done some fantastic work. Yeah. In fact, they've been much better presenters than, than I am, but there you are. Uh, <laughs> Good. One of the things I wrote down uh, that you said was, improv is a child's game and you should play it by children's rules. That's right. I like that. Yeah. Um, acting... And like I said, is the foundation of improvisation, in my opinion. And um, acting is pretend. So if we're pretending, we're playing a children's game. But you have to play a children's game by children's rules. You can't play a children's game by adult rules. It's just not fun. And so if you say to a child, let's play house, they just go and play the game. They let the game teach them. They let the game decide whether they're the mom or the dad, whether they're in the kitchen or the bedroom. But if you say to an adult, let's play house, every single time the adult's going to say, okay, you want me to be the mommy or the daddy? Because we need to conceptualize before we give ourselves permission to play the game. And I'm saying you should just go ahead and play the game without completely understanding it and let the game teach you. In other words, go ahead and fail. And fail big. Because as an artist, your greatest assets are your mistakes, and as a human being, you try not to make any. Mm. But mistakes always, most of the time, I can't say always, but they lead you to greatness, even if they teach you what not to do. But most of the time, they lead you to great pieces of gold in a scene, and you want to find those nuggets of gold. And uh, very often, mistakes lead us there because... When you make a mistake on stage, first of all, there's nothing that makes you more honest, truthful, and real than when you make a mistake. Also, it leads you to greatness. And the example I like to use is like the movie Jaws. And what they did was they built that mechanical shark in Los Angeles. They flew it to the east coast of 
of America, and they put it in the salt water in the Atlantic Ocean, and it melted. So it's my understanding that that first scene was supposed to be the shark. But because of the mistake that the uh, mechanical engineers had made, Spielberg had to invent that scene where that poor girl is get has ropes tied around her in the ocean is being pulled back and forth. Mm. And it's the most iconic pieces of one of the most iconic pieces of film in film history and it was all because a mistake was made with the shark so it's just a simple example that i give of how mistakes lead you to greatness yet we try at all cost cost as human beings to not make any mistakes yeah and then also i want i want to encourage you to fail because that gets you out of your own way and that builds trust and if you go up, like you said, in a jam where you don't know anybody, and you have give yourself permission to go up there and fail, then you're not so worried about what other people are going to think and being too polite and all of those other things we discussed a few minutes ago. Uh, and you have a much better, higher percentage of being successful in exploring and heightening the relationship than not. Yeah. And the nice thing about making mistakes is that it- and acknowledging them as it, it makes you be in the present moment. You, That's right. You know, so you're really focused on the now rather you can't be planning because something's happened now and I'm reacting to it. Right. I mean, that's another philosophy of life and a lot of intuitive and, um, you know, motivational speakers and Eckhart Tolle and Deepak Chopra, uh, Ram Das, who wrote a book called Be Here Now. All we have is now. Mm. That's it. That's all there is in life is now, this moment. And, um, you know, I think there's only two things that are really important in life. It's going to bed content with what you accomplished that day and waking up the next day excited about what you're going to do. And it doesn't matter whether you are homeless or you have billions of pounds. uh, That's all there is. So you want to accomplish something today and go to bed with that contentment and then plan something tomorrow where you're going to wake up excited and get out of bed that you're going to do something really fun. Cool, that sounds great. Yeah. So we've, we've kind of talked about the now. I'd yeah. like to maybe talk a little bit about the past. Sure. A little bit about Improv Olympic, for you are mm-hmm. one of the founders. Well, not really. I mean, I'm one of the founding members, oh, I right. would say. <laughs> I was in Barron's Barracudas, and um, uh, I was. It's, it was a very exciting time for me and uh, all of us. And uh, it was uh, Sharna Halperin had uh, helped. Del Close uh, get a little healthier. He was not uh, doing so well for a while there. And uh, she said, I'll pay you to do some workshops. And and that's kind of right about the time that I moved to Chicago. And uh, it was uh, Michael Gelman who actually encouraged me to come to Chicago. I lived in Detroit, Michigan. And uh, that's where I met my wife, Beverly, who's sitting in the hotel room with us right now behind me. Hello. Um, hello. <laughs> And so we were in the Detroit Times Theater Company, and Michael Gell, uh, um, came to teach a workshop in Detroit. And uh, he, that was after Dell came to Detroit. I met Dell in Detroit, by the way. Hmm. And then um, he said, Michael Gelman called me one day and said, what are you still doing in Detroit? You're going to die there. <laughs> and so that's when I started commuting back and forth to Chicago to take Michael Gelman's workshop, and he told me to go take Dell's workshop. And I already met, had knew, known Dell because he came to Detroit once. Uh, that's how I got started in improvisation, as I read Dell Close's name in the Detroit newspaper, and he said they were coming to teach a workshop. 
and he was the uh, acting coach for the Not Ready for Primetime Players, which was the original Saturday Night Live cast. Wow. So I literally cleaned out my bank account and went and took this workshop, and that's where I met my wife, and that was 36 years ago. Uh, we've been together, so very fortunate for that, that I found my wife there. And then, uh, so when I moved to Chicago and started studying with Dell, it was... Uh, they were putting together this first team, and uh, the team became Barons Barracudas because Del Close was the voice of a cartoon character on a cartoon named Diver Dan, and Del's character was called Barons Barracuda. I did not know that. So that's how we became Barons Barracuda, and uh, it was a great group of uh, people that I'm still friends with. Um, there was 11 of us in that group, uh, Joel Murray, Chris Barnes, J.J. Jones, Honor Finnegan, Tara Gallagher, Howard Johnson, who wrote several books with Sharna and has written a couple books about Dell, and he's also one of the biographers for Monty Python. Um, and um, let's see, uh, I don't know. The, you can look it up. Google it. Google it. You'll find out the rest of the people. I don't want to spend the whole time uh, figuring out uh, the rest of the names. But... Uh, that was uh, the birth of Barons Barracudas and the birth of Improv Olympic, and as we know it today. And uh, it was some really exciting times, and we were doing some great work. We were the first ones, Baron Barracudas and uh, Improv Olympic was the first ones to actually do long form as a show. Wow. So long form had been invented, and the Herald had been invented by the committee in the late 60s in San Francisco with Dell and those uh, cohorts and cast members. And it had always been done as parts of other shows, as improv sets at Second City or, you know, in, in between sketches and stuff. But we were the first ones to do long-form improvisation. Somebody come to the door and pay for a ticket to just, just to see long-form. Wow. So that was the birth of long-form as a show in and of itself. Yeah. And so were you doing Harold? Or were you yeah. No, we were doing Harold's. And back then, Harold's were much longer. It was We took our time. <laughs> You know, we used to practice and rehearse uh, a game that Dell taught us called slow comedy, and it meant your line of dialogue was was not finished until somebody else spoke. So your line of dialogue isn't finished till the other person responds, and to not be afraid of the silences, and that's something that I think has gone away. Uh, people, with the advent of the internet and uh, cell phones and technology, and also stand-up comedy, and everybody wanting laugh, 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 laugh. Uh, that everything has gotten shortened. So back then when we were doing Heralds, they were a minimum of 45 minutes. Wow. And we would probably go more closer to an hour. They were like 50, 55 minutes. And uh, nowadays, after 20 minutes, uh, they start looking for the out. And I think today's more, even though the structure may be kind of taught, uh, they're all basically montages. And I've only seen, in my lifetime, to be perfectly honest, I think I've seen maybe three or four perfect Heralds. Wow. In my entire 40-year career. Yeah. And so they're very rare to come by. It's very rare to do one that is, you know, like a play, like a completely composed play with the structure of ABC, game, ABC, game, ABC, and having it tie up all at the end with all the characters and all the relatedness between everybody being only discovered at the very end before the lights go out in a herald. Right. So what is it? that makes something a herald rather than just a montage? Well, the structure itself yeah. is, is the herald, but certainly when we were doing it, like I said, it, the, the structure was more disciplined, hmm. it was much slower, 
and uh, we took our time and developed the relationships and everybody the Barons Barracudas was 11 people I think I mentioned that and so we were very hip on putting together I would say like a three-dimensional picture of everything like if there was a horse carriage in the scene for instance like half the cast would become the horse carriage we would all you know kind of like uh, acrobats or or um, our contortionist uh, put ourselves in the position of creating that entire being or vehicle or inanimate object. So um, everybody worked together to not only build the relationships, but the entire picture and the environment around them. And that was an important part of the Herald, which today there's less people in the groups. Uh, they're much faster, I think, uh, again, because of the advent of technology and everybody wanting to be really funny as fast as they possibly can. If you go back and look at like the original Saturday Night Live cast and like the first season of Saturday Night Live, those scenes are so long. You won't believe it. Nowadays, even on Saturday Night Live, they're, they're much quicker and faster. Yeah. And part of it, I think, is um, that uh, our education in sketch comedy and in um, acting has... has as advanced in technology as well. But I think also everybody's in a fucking hurry. Yeah. Everybody is in such a fucking hurry. And it's it's interesting. In my workshops, people will come and pay for the workshop and they can't wait to get up there and do the experience of the scene. And then they can't wait to run and fucking sit down as fast as they can. Yeah. It's like, where are you going? How you it's not about how fast you can accomplish something. Let's just take our time and let things, you know, develop organically and emerge organically instead of forcing the issue and trying to get it uh, as quickly as you possibly can. We want to just take a step back. And that's why I call my workshops the art of allowing improv workshops with Mark Beltzman is to let it happen to you instead of you trying to make it happen. It's also because I'm a huge Abraham Hicks fan. And the art of allowing is what they call their seminars. Uh-huh. Um, and if you don't know who Abraham Hicks is, look uh, them up. It's Esther and Jerry Hicks who wrote a book called Ask and It Is Given. And it's a great book. It's both my wife and I's Bible. Uh, I read it all the time. I've probably read it 30 or 40 times. And it's about law of attraction and creating your life and that you and I are each creative source energy. And that we get to create every moment in our lives, whether we know it or not. So whatever you're putting out to the universe is exactly what you're getting. Like if you want to get more money, um, you the universe is going to answer that. But you have to get in action and do something about it. Right. And you can't go to the store and say, I can't afford that. Or be looking at the internet and you want to take a really extravagant trip to Africa and go, oh, there's, I can't afford that. Because then what you're getting from the universe is you're right. You can't afford it. So it's got to be really powerful and pay attention to the words and what you're putting out to the universe and you get to create your life. And my wife and I have experienced that several times here on this trip. Like we wanted to go to the Globe and they were having the first preview of Hamlet last Wednesday and um, um, they were completely sold out. So we got in the uh, returns line and uh, somebody walked up and offered us two free standing room tickets but we wanted to sit down. So we held out, and we got the king seats. Wow. And I'm not kidding you. 
like all the people who worked at the Globe sat behind us. <laughs> we had the first front row center section of the Globe to sit down in. Wow. And then my wife, while I was teaching on Saturday, wanted to go see Hamilton. And, of course, that's the hottest ticket in the yeah. world. And she got front row mezzanine center seat. Wow. And so we create our lives. And we're human and we make mistakes and we're not perfect. Or, you know, we, we, we fall into the same traps that you do and we all do as human beings. But we're also aware that... When we really want to manifest something, if you get an action and really work hard at it, uh, that anything is possible. And everything we do in life is limitless. Limitless. Everything is. Brilliant. That sounds like magic. It is. It can be. It feels like magic sometimes. It feels like it, when, it's, when it works, it feels like magic. When it doesn't, you feel like you're drudging through cement. <laughs> uh, so, um, thinking about... Uh, the Harold, what's your favorite game? Because my understanding is, so you, you come on and mm -hmm. you play a group game and you're generating ideas that will then form the scenes that follow, is that? Mm, yeah, I, I somewhat. I mean, I don't even know if I'd call that a game, but the beginning of uh, the Harold, the way we learned it, going back to those days, was that you would walk around and do wild line. You'd get a suggestion from the audience first, of course. Then, and I have an opinion about that as well, I'll explain later, but um, you get, get, just do wild lines. Like you're just saying whatever comes to mind and whatever that suggestion brings up from you. And that was sort of laying the blueprint of what might happen or might not happen in, in the um, long form experience. But then as Dell taught us, to start as far away from that suggestion after that initial wildline thing and let that trust that the group will lean and come towards the suggestion by the end of the herald and not hit it over the head at the beginning. That's one of the worst things you can do is take a suggestion and then start a scene using that suggestion and hit it over the head because you've got nowhere to go. Yeah, you yeah. might as well not even take a suggestion, yeah. which is what I said was my opinion about that is I don't even believe in taking suggestions any longer. No. We used to take suggestions basically, I think, because we had to educate our audience as well as perform for them and that way they felt part of the experience. But now... Improv is a worldwide business, and everybody knows what improv is. We don't have to spend as much time educating the audience. Yeah. So I don't think I don't like to take a suggestion. I like to do it, you know, with two or four, maybe six people at the most. But two people is really fun, and go for at least an hour just doing uh, basically a montage or a mono scene or scenarios, and those are all different forms that you can play with, and you could do them all in the context of an hour with two people on stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really fun. Yeah, I find that um, often um, I forget a suggestion pretty much as soon as I've heard it anyway. Mm -hmm. So even if I ask for a suggestion, I'm not really using it. Yeah, it, we forget them most of the time. And if we use them, then we hit them overhead at the beginning. But the whole idea, getting back to the other conversation, was you take the suggestion, you do the wild lines, which lays the blueprint, you stay as far away from it as possible. And Del Close used to describe it as the Hancock building in Chicago, which um, is, is the base of it is really far apart, and it starts to come together the higher you go, but it never comes to a complete point at right. the top. It's like uh, uh, there's a, a, a section that is um, closer than it is at the bottom, but there, it doesn't come to a peak. 
And that was the structure that he used to describe the herald to us. Um, so you want to stay as far away from the suggestion, lead towards it, and trust that the scenes that you're doing will actually incorporate the suggestion towards the end of it. Yeah. But like I said, nowadays, I don't want to take a suggestion. I just want to improvise and, and dwell and explore and heighten the relationship between two people. That, I think, is the most fun for me personally. I haven't done uh, much uh, in the way of Harold's, but I have done a fair bit of narrative uh, musical uh, mm -hmm. improvisation. And that moment where at the end of the show, if you can bring back the title that you got at the start of the yes, show and yes. incorporate it into the chorus or into the this last song, and everyone goes, yes. wow, they remembered that thing and then they've done that thing. That's amazing. That is great. It's really fun. And, you know, it's just improvisation to me is a drug. And nothing gets you higher than being on stage and being really successful and exploring and heightening the relationship, incorporating uh, all of your ensemble members, making them look good, which makes you look twice as good. The audience enjoys the experience and everybody uh, really gets high from, from a really successful, well done experience. Yeah, yeah that, 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 that sounds great. Um, you mentioned scenarios is a, mm -hmm. a I'm not quite sure what that form is Could you uh, it's sort of like a uh, a short play you know like a one-act play that you would improvise hmm. so you get a suggestion of anything and then the characters basically would stay the same uh, I guess TJ and Dave uh, kind of do more scenario based kind of work right. even though they would swipe and do different scenes and different characters and tap outs and maintain all the characters that they had created uh, that would be more like a scenario kind of thing for one hour of doing uh, variations on a theme from one basic scene right. one premise scene yeah. and then you can go and travel in a time dash fashion backward and forward in time or location wise in a tangent on the side taking it from one location to another but it basically all has the root of the same characters starting with at the beginning and at the end even though we've developed different um, locations and time dashes throughout the experience right and that's different from a mono scene and a mono scene uh, is it's very oh, similar is I would it? think a mono scene may be uh, not traveling to different locations right. it all takes place in one location yeah maybe different characters within the same hotel that'd be or true like that. yeah yeah yeah, they're all kind of variations on a theme, really. Yeah, uh, it's just whenever I go and talk to people, um, lots of people have different names for games and forms. Yeah, and no. even if they have the same names. Yeah, well, that's interesting because, you know, back when we started, there was basically one source. It was Viola Spolin, and Paul Sills was her son, and that's all anybody had learned, you know, even Dell. Uh, he had developed his own ideas from that, but we only had one source of, of, of terminology, a glossary of terms, and then it started to expand. And so uh, people say, let's play Switch. Well, what is that? It's called Freeze Tag. Oh, yeah, I know what that is. Mm -hmm. And so we used to call it Switch because at Second City, our joke was whenever the show wasn't going well, we'd just say cut to Switch because that was the last thing we'd do in every show. And it's freeze tag, but then everything has a tangent. Now you can go to 
uh, improv encyclopedia and Google that, and there's hundreds of thousands of different names for the same game yeah. and the explanation. And every time you click on one, it'll say go see, and there's like three or four different games that are similar yeah. or that they're based on or that they're variations of. So it, it gets really confusing <laughs> because we all, you know, they're speaking the same language with different terminology. Yeah. I don't know how you'd explain it. Maybe we're speaking a different language. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you and I speak a different language, but the cultures are definitely different. We know that for sure. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, just going back to just for a second. So you've got these um, these games. Mm -hmm. um, what's your favorite game that you play in a Herald? Do you have a favorite? I don't know if there's a favorite game. Um, I recently tried an invocation. Oh, Yeah. That was one of Dell's uh, things. I remember the first time we ever worked with Dell in Detroit, Michigan. He was way into invocation. He was he was a Wiccan. Yeah. So he pla he practiced witchcraft, and he would read ruins in the morning uh, by himself at home. And it, it was, I think there's a relatedness to that. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's all very spiritual in nature. Um, I think that's kind of. I, I call it improvisation and acting, but what I really teach, I think, is transformation because it's all life lessons. Yeah. It's all stuff that you should be doing anyways. Make your partner look good. You look twice as good. Be in the moment. Be honest, truthful, and real. Taking care of each other. Replace thinking with listening. You know, all those principles are things that you should be doing in life anyways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, those are just things that we do. But um, the invocation thing is very spiritual, and so is the herald, and so is long-form improvisation. And so any tool that you can use to access uh, your creativity, I think, is really valuable. But as far as my favorite game, I don't, I'm not a big game person, you know, because when we first did the herald in Baron's Barracudas, like there was, there was, you do one through five scenes, you drop two of them, and that's what became ABC. Then you do a game, ABC, game, ABC. Sometimes, and especially at the beginning, the games were real short form improv games. But as we progressed, like in between ABC and ABC, we would do a courtroom drama. And so we'd play the game of courtroom. Or there'd be a doctor drama. So you'd play the game of doctor or surgeon. And that became a game. Right. Like finding the game within the scene. Right. Or finding the game to play in any improv scene. And so that, to me, is more beneficial to find the game in the scene that you're playing or find the game in the relationship that you're exploring and heightening than a specific short-form game to... And that's my philosophy. It's just a more advanced way of playing but you can't do one without the other. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that um, improv suffer, suffers from these days is that people want to start and learn improvisation and go straight to long form without learning the essentials and the foundation of the principles of acting or short form. Short form teaches you uh, what a beginning, middle, and end looks like, what comedy is, what it isn't what making your partner look good feels like. And so short form is really important to learn before you do long form. But um, many times, and in many organizations and theaters, they go right to long form improvisation and they don't have much of a foundation of what works and what doesn't or how to make your partner look good yeah. or all the principles that we learn from doing short form. Yeah. 
yeah I find it very interesting because um, I've been spending a bit of time outside of London and just talking to people from around the UK and finding out that you know there's a lot more short form in other cities around the UK than there is in London. In London, we're in a strange kind of, mm-hmm. you know, bubble where there seems to be a lot more long form than there is short form. Yeah. Um, and, you know... There are some great improvisers in London. I mean, some really talented people here. It's really fun to experience and see, especially because I was here six years ago, and see how much it's developed and grown in the last six years. is it, It's amazing. Yeah. It's, I'm really impressed. What's changed? Uh, I think... Um, the uh, education and the expansion of teachers from uh, America and all over the world coming here. I think uh, people sharing ideas and the principles of improvisation are making your partner look good, you look twice as good, and that's something I practice as being uh, a teacher of improvisation is how can I make this room full of students look good. And I think that has permeated throughout the world now, and so everybody uh, at a very high level and high proficiency level and skill level of improvisation has come to um, uh, London. And also you have Keith Johnstone and all the people who are doing the work here who are becoming more proficient on their own. Yeah. I mean, it's not credited to other people necessarily. And, uh, you know, we're developing, just like I used uh, the um, metaphor of being a musician, um, you know, kind of like jazz and, and, and the um, genesis uh, of the education in London in and of itself has grown and expanded and people's minds are being expanded and who knows whether it's drugs or alcohol that's causing that or <laughs> that's what always was Dell's philosophy is do more drugs and alcohol to expand your awareness. But yeah. the awareness of itself in, in London has, has really, really grown and it's really fun to see and watch. and. And Hoopla's grown, and the nursery's got a new space, and they've grown, and and there's uh, wasn't it there's the FA the Free Association, right? Yes. So uh, that's new since I've been here. I, I didn't I didn't get a chance to get over there and check them out. I'd like to uh, get invited to do a show over there at some time, and <laughs> I'd like to perform more uh, in London. So next time I come about, maybe we can make that happen. Let's let's see what let's see what we can do. Yeah. 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 Uh, so when you are performing and you're performing with people that you know trust mm-hmm. do you like to give them gifts uh, or do you like to mess with them or it is de- it really the same thing I guess it depends on what side of the bed I got up on that morning <laughs> um, they're both valuable and they're both fun it depends on like who you're playing with and what's in the moment and I mean most important like I said earlier the work is always the most important thing but sometimes fucking with people can be a lot of fun <laughs> and uh and, and, and like I said, it, you, re- have to, you have to be really good at reading the energy in the room and reading the energy and the mood of the partners that you're playing with. But they're both valuable, and I love them both dearly. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting what you're saying about reading the energy in the room. And yeah. Thinking about the audience, which is something you've mentioned before, is really interesting to me because I was very much, when I started, it was like, you know, fourth wall, you know, Mm-hmm. Act like the audience isn't there, but as I've done more improvisation, I'm actually thinking more about the audience and the relationship between the performers and the audience. Yeah, and actually, that's so rich uh, a relationship to explore, and you can do it without sacrificing the scene. Absolutely, uh, like I've been saying, the audience is part of the ensemble. They have to be in on that moment of discovery. So the fourth wall 
I don't even know if it exists anymore because of like what we were just talking about, the e- expanded awareness of improvisers around the world. We used to think that that fourth wall was very solid and that you couldn't cross it. But nowadays, I believe uh, that they are part of the show. They have to be in those three points of focus have to come together and they are an integral part of those three points of focus. And every single time that discovery is made by you, your partner and the audience, it literally will stop the show. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. just does. It, it changes the energy in the room. And uh, that's really the fun part of, of being an improviser. Cool. Okay. Uh, last couple of questions. Mm-hmm. If someone is on stage of you, what can they do to delight you? Um, delight me. Well, uh, just, you know, if you make your partner look good, you look twice as good. And so that being returned and them making me look good, uh, no matter what the context or situation, excites me more than anything. And when that's returned, like a nice tennis match or a ping pong match, and I'm making you look good and you make me look good, no matter what the context or the content uh, then it's really fun for us, which makes it really fun for the audience, and everybody's having a good time, and that's what really turns me on. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting um, ensuring that the if you're performing with somebody and you're enjoying performing with them, mm-hmm. it's interesting to me because I don't know that it always necessarily follows that the audience will enjoy themselves. I mean, I think it helps. Yeah. It's probably better than if uh, a team is not enjoying playing with each other. I don't know. I just wonder. Wonder if sometimes I've seen people go watch. If I've been in the audience and I've been watching people going, well, they're having a lovely time, but I'm still not sure I'm having a good time. Well, it, look, there's no perfect situation, and you're not going to please a hundred percent of the people a hundred percent of the time. But um, what I learned to do with teaching. Uh, I used to uh, cater to the lowest common denominator, meaning like the least experienced improviser, but I found over the years that if I cater to the highest common denominator and the most experienced person in the room, that everybody rises up to that level. And I think that's very um, uh, appropriate and translates to the audience. If you are catering to the highest common denominator, playing to the top of your intelligence, being in the moment, being honest, truthful, and real, that a higher percentage of the audience will be able to relate to that. And that's what you want to cater to and not cater to the two or three people who are going to be offended or not in a good mood or probably bringing their shit from home into the show and they're going to criticize anything you do. And the other part of that is when we become improvisers and actors, we actually lose the ability to be an audience member. Yes. <laughs> because we judge. We sit there and judge. And so most of those people who aren't having a good time are judging you or judging the experience or judging somebody else or have um, some kind of issue with somebody who's up there and they go, oh, they, they think they're really great. And, they're, you know, they're, and so it's a, you know, they're, they're not being honest with themselves. They're holding a grudge or being in stuck in a moment that they had a bad day or whatever the case may be. Um, I agree. And I just I think I just want to refine it a little bit. I'm okay. not sure they're judging, but I know I've been in audiences mm-hmm. um, uh, and I'm watching an improv group and I'm having an amazing time. And I'm, but I'm maybe not laughing or reacting as much because my mind is going. I'm going, how are they doing this? This is technically 
fantastic, I'm really enjoying this, yeah. but I'm also trying to unlock the puzzle while it's going. Right. And then afterwards, you know, it might not seem as if I was having a way of a time, but I was. It was just I was enjoying it in a different way. Well, that's sort of like trying to figure out, how, you know, in the middle of sex, why this feels so good. <laughs> It's, I want you, to be good you, at these you things. You take yourself out of the experience <laughs> and then you're judging it or you're trying to figure out how to recreate it. You can't do it. But is if there a If you're difference? having sex, you're going to go for an orgasm. You don't want to stop your orgasm to figure out why this feels so good. But is there a difference between watching sex and, what, and, and, and watching improv and thinking, all right, there are things people are doing there. I can learn from those. So the next time I'm doing it, whether it be sex or improv, I can be better at it. Well, I don't know. I, I, I suppose there's value in it, and we all want to learn to become better human beings and evolve. Each one of us does. Uh, but sometimes it's better to uh, examine, dissect, and diagnose after the experience than it is during. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's where the value of doing a podcast or taping it or recording it and uh, being able to relive that experience to see what worked and what didn't after the fact. Uh, right, yes. I agree. <laughs> Fantastic. A uh, big final question. Yes. What would you say uh, when, <laughs> when improvising, uh, not having sex, when improvising, what would you say that your uh, signature move was? What is it that you do that brings the house down, that saves the day? People go, oh, classic boltsman. Uh, probably just being loud and obtrusive. <laughs> um, and saying the word fuck a lot seems to work. I don't know. It's kind of a cheat, and it's cheap, and it's easy. But it always, almost 100% of the time, fuck you, Stuart. That's bullshit question. That just fucking... Why would you end this fucking podcast doing a bullshit question like that? That's just not right. And that's kind of... And he's sitting here almost in tears. Doing my sad face okay. now. Uh, my sad, sad face. manufactured face. <laughs> you are um, right. It's a manufactured face. Uh, <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> but, yeah, that's kind of my cheap, you know, go-to move, I suppose, if I'm being honest. <laughs> well, I feel that's a move that other people can learn from and adopt. So. <laughs> well, you just... You want to be as honest as you can, and that's really the secret to, to all this stuff. It's really fun. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Stuart. And, uh, you know, thanks for having me on this podcast. It's I listen to the Steve Rowe. And also, uh, before we leave, I do want to end by uh, acknowledging Steve Rowe uh, for helping me uh, put together all this stuff and Hoopla. They've been amazing, and they do amazing work, and I'm really proud to be part of that. Uh, um, and I want to come back and do some longer courses uh, with Steve and with Hoopla and uh, see you again and revisit this and... Um, and see if we can't uh, make some more people aware of uh, what we do for a living and, and how much fun it is. So thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Right on. Thank you. I made this. That's improv. <laughs>